0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. I'm speaking today with Jessica Hopper, author of the book, The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, which is now out in new expanded edition. Jessica, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having
2: me, Andy. Uh, as I was saying before we got on, on mic, I, I really enjoyed the book. So it's, it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you.
1: I'm happy to be able to talk about it with you today.
2: (laughs) There's a sentence early on in the book that really jumped out at me where you write, there is a void in my guts that can only be filled with songs. Have you always had such an intensely visceral relationship with music?
1: No, I think it really uh, developed once I got into uh, and heard punk rock. I, I liked music. And, and I listened to the radio a lot as a kid, but I didn't know about music that I could connect to, as you say, so viscerally. And so once I found music that was truly meaningful to me, both in spirit and sound, then that is really where that
2: connection exploded.
1: And, and I was about 15 when that happened.
2: Yeah. I feel like that is sort of what punk rock is for is to like provide that really intense visceral experience for a 15 year old. But uh, I or, you know, or an older person. I I love a lot of punk rock still. I'm almost 30. Um, But I want to know kind of specifically, what did what did punk do for you at that time early on in your life?
1: I mean, it really gave a framework, you know, a tradition, a um, something to sort of build on when it came to my, uh, my ennui, my discontent, um, you know, my burgeoning feminist values. You know, I was, I was, uh, an activist from a young age and was often very, um, you know, I had a lot of concern and upset and disdain for how, uh, the world saw me and saw other people. And, punk punk was really kind of like oh this is the thing i feel this is the thing i um you know it, it it gave me really a a framework for my own uh rebellion you know as a as a young person
2: um you write a lot in the book about punk rock and it's it's many kind of permutations. You write about the all Latino Southcore festival, but you also write about the sort of orgy of commercial abs- excess that that is the warp Tour. Uh-huh. Um, what do you feel like is still exciting to you about punk? And what do you what do you as you know, a, a, however many years into being a punk fan, uh, what do, what keeps you kind of coming back?
1: You know, I think for me it is really. Uh, continually a place where people can bring that sense of discontent that they can bring joy that they can bring amateur ideas that, that you can bring really big ideas and that punk is still a fairly um, flexible framework even though I think a lot of people probably from the outside don't think of it in that way. And, and to me, that's also, you know, just DIY music in general uh, and, and how people can um, have a very direct communication about how they think or feel about themselves, their lives, the world. And so to me, I think there's just more license to um, have people show up fully as themselves within, within punk spaces and DIY spaces. Um, and, and to, you know, it's, it's much more collaborative, um, as a space generally than, you know, more commute, commercial music, which is really, you know, uh, music that's groomed for, uh, people did not, not really think uh, critically uh, about it or the world or what's happening and in the music and and who's bringing it to you and why. Um, And so to me, I've always just been interested in any kind of space, even outside of music that that does um, allow people to show up so fully um, with all their weird ideas.
2: Yeah. And yet there's always been a strand in punk that is sort of just as like macho and white supremacist and, and all the other things that, that punk is sort of Mm -hmm. ostensibly rebelling against Mm -hmm. like that, that stuff reappears in punk and you have an amazing sort of footnote uh, about Henry Rollins and sort of suggesting maybe he's not the guy who gets to decide what is and is not punk forever. Mm -hmm. So uh, it it definitely seems like you're, you're kind of aware of that, that push and pull of the promise of, of punk as a force for liberation, but the Mm -hmm. reality often falling short of that.
1: Yeah. And, and that was very much uh, what excitedly drew me to Riot Girl and a lot of uh, early American uh, all-women punk bands. It was because when I first did uh, make my way to punk shows, it was um, it was really all about hardcore and, as you're saying, this sort of dogma, dogmatic, macho, tough, violent place and and i thought you know there's this is like not the punk that i thought i would encounter here it was it was not that you know on its face and in its practice was not what i was interested in at all to me that was another iteration of um you know what uh, what i was what i was fighting against what i thought was um really repressive about culture at large and so you know, I, there's there's still obviously and always has been a sort of um, <laughs> you know punk for good and punk for for macho evil. So um, I've I've always been interested in in you know the the, the bands um, that are more expansive and inclusive in their ideas. Um, you know, be they feminist or be they um, just more amateur and saying, you know, anybody can get in on this. And th- and that's, that's, you know, the the whether I'm writing about, you know, bands like Chalk Circle or The Raincoats or Fugazi or Bikini Kill um, in the book, you know, when I'm writing about punk bands in particular that I love, or, you know, even later on TV on the radio, who's more of an indie rock band, um, you know, I, I was drawn to them for their expression of those, ideals that I hold very dear still.
2: Do you think there's a sort of like form content connection between punk bands who are more willing to like take in influences from other music being maybe also more inclined to have, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like better politics?
1: Yes. I I, I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, there was a band from Washington, D.C. that I really loved uh, called Smart Went Crazy, who were on Discord um, in the late 90s and early aughts. And, you know, they were, they were a band that was influenced by Talk Talk and the Beatles. And, um, you know, they they weren't, they weren't staunch in only drawing from Punks Well. And they were a band where, you know, um, I learned like I learned about American history from their songs. I, I learned who Bayard Rustin was, you know, that there was, <laughs> there were a lot of, um, different things that they brought to the table, um, that were just really dynamic in that way. And, and, and what I love about that. And, and I, I agree with you about the, you know, the form and function and influence, um, you know, being being brought in all directions. That you know, I'm always interested in bands that that are expansive in that way, because I think it draws people in. You know, I think I think um, that is something that those are very much the bands that have always held my interest. Is is a band that whether it is through their you know, how they, how they kind of do their personal professional politics like Fugazi or Smart Went Crazy or um, other bands that are just sonically expansive, that they give us a sense, they give their listeners a sense of what could be possible for them. You know, they make you think about um, what are the limits that you're putting on your own life or your own ideas? Um, how, can I, how can I live differently? How can I conduct myself differently? How can I um, go deeper into these ideas that I'm curious about or that um, kind of give you a more charged sense, you know? So th- that's that's really, you know, been something that both is reflected in my taste and also reflected in what I cover in um, this revised and expanded edition of the first collection.
2: I'd love to ask you a bit about your kind of personal biography, you, you went to high school in Minneapolis, and I was actually born in Minneapolis, so I moved away when I was a kid. Um, and, and I noticed there was like one, at least one uh, lifter puller reference, which indicates that you were sort of paying attention to some, to some extent to what was going around you in high school. Um, how do you think Minneapolis shaped your sensibilities?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, Lifter Puller were very important to me. Uh Craig Finn, who who fronted that band and nail Friends the Hold study, was my neighbor. And he was a couple years older than me. No and way. and is is my perhaps my oldest friend. And I actually um it's not listed in like, you know, uh, other books by the author at the, at the beginning, but I did a small book on lift or puller that came with a uh um I think it was a box set or something, but it was, it was a, it was a very long oral history. Um, so it wasn't exactly, you know, a criticism, but, um, I've, I've had a long, a long history with, um, every band that Craig's been in, um, including I took the photos, uh, on the first or second lifter polar single or pictures that I took. Um, but the, the influence of Minneapolis, I mean, I think there's there's been a long history of um, great critics, great music critics that came out of City Pages, which is one of the alt-weeklies, and, you know, a very sort of no BS Midwestern tenor to that writing, um, because it wasn't part of this, um, you know, there was no major label industry there was no, um, there kind of it, it, there wasn't necessarily like a way up in criticism there at that time. You know, you wrote for City Pages, and that was sort of the peak. Um, and so people were really, um, you know, writing for um, the love of it, and um, and that you could be really direct, and and that was that was expected of you. And, and that criticism and writing about what was happening in the music scene was a way of participating. And that was very much something that was expected of me as a young person in that scene, to not just be a consumer, but be a participant. Uh, because at the dawn of the 90s, there just wasn't as much, uh, you know, as many mechanisms or as much machination about um, the music industry, air quotes, industry. Um, but if you're part of the underground, you really had to be part of it. You had to mm-hmm. take part in it. And, um, you know, a lot of the critics that I came up reading then went on to, um, you know, the sort of golden era of spin magazine and, and are now, uh, this, many of them are still, uh, editors and writers. Um, but, you know, so it seemed, I think part of the thing is also, is it seemed like a viable thing to do. And there was just really interesting criticism. And uh, coming up at a uh, time when there was a feminist music critic at the local alt-weekly who was writing every week, to me, it really gave me a sense that, oh, this is something I could do too, even though I was 16.
2: You've been writing music criticism for a while and, and during a time when the kind of landscape of music criticism has changed a lot. Um, how How has it changed? And has that made it, i don't know sort of harder for you to do what you do for a living or or do you feel like it's just a different uh, a different path to the same to the same ending mm-hmm.
1: i mean there's been there's been a lot of uh, you know structural change is the big one you know i mean there's mm-hmm. been like a huge i've been writing for 25 years or something like that and you know <laughs> just while i was making this book five different alt weeklies that I had come up at ceased publication. So there's, there's a lot less room for a certain, a lot less avenues for a certain type of music writing for a certain type of criticism for certain ways of being in dialogue with a music community. Um, you know, when I first started writing, there were not websites about music and, um, And, 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 but at the same time, there are other avenues that are opening up for music journalism, you know, with the advent of podcasting. And, you know, the other thing that I think has been a really positive change is, you know, the makeup of criticism, you know, you see now that there's a lot more critics of color who are, um, have staff positions at, uh, at big publications you know, at the New Yorker and New York Times and um, folks who are, who I think have perspectives, people who come from different backgrounds than what typically made up music journalism's ranks for decades. And, you know, we we now see Britney Spanos having, um, you know, all all manner of incredible profiles in Rolling Stone. And, you know, I think she was the first Black woman to uh, do a cover story for Rolling Stone. And she's someone who came up fairly recently. I used to work with her as a as a uh, editor when she was at Rookie, uh, which is a magazine that was by and for, you know, teenage or young women primarily, um, just five years ago. And so the idea that um you know there's some people are saying oh you know music journalism is dying and da, 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 da i mean yes there's a lot less opportunities there's a lot less ways to make a living there's a but there is less gatekeeping and who who comprises you know the the ranks now has has changed really radically and and for the better since i first started you know as a teenager and I didn't know, I mean, 97% of the people that I knew doing this were uh, white men of a certain age.
2: You mentioned podcasts as a, a new form of music journalism. And I actually, I think that was how I first uh, got to know your work was through your season of Lost Notes, which which I thought was absolutely Uh, incredible. Um, And I'd love to ask you about kind of how do you approach telling a story about a band differently when you're doing it for a podcast versus for a print essay?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So one of the reasons that I've really been drawn to podcasting and and producing uh, music journalism and, you know, audio and documentary form is that there's just certain ways that you can bring that you can immerse people in the world of of a band through sound, um, and sometimes I think it actually serves the story better than when it's written. You know, it's it's just alive in a different way, and and you can um, give people a different kind of context and draw them into the story uh, emotionally in ways that sometimes might be hard, particularly when you're talking about people who maybe are dead, or, um, you know, stories that are older that you can show a different kind of evolution um, and ideas through, you know, sound, through recordings, through archival. And, and I really love that. Um, and, and it allows you to go, allows you to go long in a way that sometimes, um, you know, particularly in the last couple of years of music journalism uh, for, for web or for print, it really, it, you know, you can't do that. And also you can take stories of people who are just completely unknown and bring people, bring a listener really deeply into them. Whereas, you know, if they just saw a headline, they might not ever click on it, you know? So I I really, um, how, I, how I prepare for these things is fairly similar, you know? There's, it's sort of like, who's the great expert? Who's the great narrator that I can get here? What are the, what are the questions this idea forces us to try to answer or confront? You know, I mean, it's, it's fairly similar in that way. Um, but one of the things that I really like about podcasting is that you can literally get other voices in there. And, you know, fundamentally I come from a, a background of making a fanzine and, and doing things kind of as a As a crew, and and that's really one of the things that I love, Um, you know, the collaborative effort of bringing something to life in you know a documentary form is is getting to work with sort of you know an ensemble cast and and really kind of figuring out how we're gonna how we're gonna put on the show, and um, you know for the same reason I I like uh, I like writing it's a very hermetic thing it's me trying to get to the bottom of a of a story or an idea or a review um, in my brain <laughs> so there, so there, that's that's the primary way that they're that they're different you know there's um, there's not much in the way of collaboration when you're mm-hmm. um, reporting something per se other than with your editor
2: i feel like one of the ways that music criticism you know, from my outsider's perspective seems to be different is that like when you're writing a review of an album, now anybody reading that review can just pull up that album on Spotify or YouTube or whatever, and listen to it as, Mm -hmm. as you're, as they're reading. So it seems like there's less of a need to like actually describe the music, uh, like thinking about like a like a Ellen Willis piece from the 60s or 70s, like she really spends a lot of time like telling you what it sounds like mm-hmm. because, you know, she, she assumes her reader has never heard this music.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and maybe they couldn't even, uh, you know, find the record where they lived.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So is that is that something you think about in terms of like uh, not having to do that as much and feeling like I mean, I, I feel like what you're doing in a lot of these pieces is contextualizing music mm-hmm. rather than. You know, describing thumbs up, thumbs
1: down is not really right. my uh, milieu. You know, and I, I think you
2: even took out the you took out the the ratings on the record reviews that you reprinted, which I thought was great.
1: Yeah, I mean, I never ch- I never chose those. So oh, really, no, no, wow. those are normally assigned that. by editors. Huh. And um, the, I mean, I think I think the thing there is that. So much of my criticism is really about, as you said, context, putting a frame around something, interpreting something um, in hopes of bringing people into a way of, of just thinking more deeply about the music. Um, or, um, you know, let's say the, the, the one of the Lana Del Rey pieces that I have in there that's a review of her record, you know, I talk about, you know, she mentions Pico Boulevard and La Brea Boulevard in this particular lyric. And if you didn't know, you might think, oh, these are these are just streets. This is about driving through L.A. Mm-hmm. But what Pico Boulevard is within the um, history of Los Angeles is very working class. It cuts through a lot of immigrant neighborhoods. It's really um, a, sort of a reference more to, um, I think coming to Los Angeles with a dream, whereas Librea was, is, is kind of in this way, a, a stand-in as we say, um, you know, it, it symbolizes, it symbolizes um, a different kind of big dream of Los Angeles. And and that I kind of talk about, you know, the paradox of those and and how they relate to um, her music and what I think she's trying to do there, what I think she's trying to tell us about ambition, especially for an artist who has long been assailed for the size of their own ambition, questioned for, uh, you know, how... Uh, how real their artistry was in compared to their ambition you know uh -hmm. she's someone who early on was really shot down for for seemingly wanting to to be a pop star um and i think and so you know for me it's less about like oh it sounds like this it sounds like this is that um I think I'm always just trying to ultimately make people think a little bit more about, uh, what, what they're listening to, hopefully provide some framework that maybe you can't necessarily just hear in something or, you know, either offer, you know, some, some, uh, some of my thoughts on whether, whether the, the artist, uh, seems to hit their mark and what it means if they don't.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat and heat. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Go to
1: your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. This episode
0: is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild.
2: You had a you mentioned you have a couple pieces about Lana Del Rey, and I think it was the first of them in the book really kind of delves into that question um, that a lot of people had uh, when she kind of first first came onto the scene of like, who's really behind the scenes here? Who's pulling the strings? And your point is sort of like, Lana Del Rey's pulling the strings, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, she's her own Svengali, Um, which which I thought was a really interesting point and leads to my question, which is like, how do you deal with uh, writing about pop music in a way that feels both respectful of the artist who is, you know, to some degree and to a greater degree for different artists in charge of how they're, packaged and presented to the world, mm-hmm. while also recognizing that like, this is a business and these are giant corporations and there is, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what Joni Mitchell called the star maker machinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, how do you balance those two things? Because I I really got the sense that you were genuinely interested in both sides of that equation.
1: Yes. No, I, I, I'm glad that came through because I absolutely am. You know I mean? It's, you know, it was sort of revelatory for me as a young music fan and a, and a reader to read critics that, you know, whether it was, you know, Bob Kriskow or somebody else, uh, you know, other critics really take the entire package, you know, let's say we're talking about like the first Britney Spears record, you know, how she's sitting on the cover, how she's looking at the camera, how she's presented to us the song and album titles. What does this all mean? You know so even if even if we can't necessarily discern uh, agency and artistic intent, you know, where does it originate? Um, I think people are wisely uh, and rightly pretty skeptical when it comes to um, pop music about. You know, just what's, you uh, know, just what what the motivation between behind, you know, certain sort of images or aesthetic choices are, um, and and and, but to me, it's not just about, you know, just the music, you know, uh, it's not just about, you know, as we're saying, this is good or bad, you know, because then what would you really have to say about? Someone who uh, who early on was his manufacturer to say um, Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be like, this is good. Her singing is nice. These beats are good. She's a good dancer. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, this this is familiar to anyone who cares about pop. Um, you know, and, and that that doesn't bring us into, that doesn't bring a listener into a, a deeper understanding of anything. When you're just like thumbs up, thumbs down, um, and so to me, reading those early critics who were taking every part of every part of what was the presentation of this artist, whether it was you know, can you really understand the words? Does this person seem to want to be understand uh, understood? You know, um, this person's coming out of a, a manufactured you know Disney background. What does that mean? You know, um, that there's, that this person not only has uh, records uh, with their face on them, but like, you know, Disney brand pillows, you know? So like what, (laughs) you know, so so that kind of uh, criticism really gave me um, good instruction on, look at the whole picture. Yeah. Look at how this artist is speaking to their fans. Look at how they're the worldview that they're presenting through these songs, the big idea, the big idea, you know, that that's, Mm -hmm. that's been my thing for a long time. Um, but, uh, I think that's how you, um, as a critic can, can engage with something that's maybe in some ways so basic of a product sometimes.
0: Yeah.
2: Because, I mean, obviously, I don't want to, like, draw a direct connection between these two things, but, like, obviously the idea that Britney Spears is nothing more than a package designed to make money is, you know, has is, is recently been in the news a lot, because that is how she's been treated by the people who have been entrusted by the government to, to look after her well-being, right?
1: hmm hmm Absolutely. And, and I think that's a really... Um... I feel like it is very much a story for our that's very ripe for these times, you know, what's Mm -hmm. going on with her, because I think a lot of millennial and even Gen Z um, fans in particular come come to the table with a sort of discernment and skepticism about like every aspect of of music history and and sort of canonical music ideas that are handed to them or that they're sort of culturally inherited from, you know, Gen Xers, you know, the, and, and even before, you know, that they, they're naturally more skeptical about, okay, well, this person, you know, succeeded, but at what cost or this person succeeded but why did it happen for them and not this other person who only got one record out? You know, what happened to them that in their lives that kept them from being able to record or tour, you know, keep producing or, or be celebrated. And, and so I think, I think these sorts of stories that are are coming out is in part because there is um, you know that discernment that seeking that skepticism of a younger generation of fans as opposed to you know I'm I'm kind of late gen x and and came up in, in uh, you know with these ideas that were handed to me about you know well anyone who tries too hard is is just problematic that's just embarrassing you know or anything that's pop music is just you know suspect to a degree that you write it off or um, anything that is too someone who's like you know has too much ambition is is gross if they want to be more right, than
2: right.
1: you know an independent artist and so I think these I think these changes are really um, being reflected in the kinds of stories that we that we get now in part because there's an appetite for it that creates a sort of like you know it's 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 a, a new a new hierarchy, a new framework. Different things are valued now in terms of um, relationships with with popular music, and and I think it's I think it's really exciting.
2: One sort of genre of piece that's collected in this book is uh, you writing a review of a reissue of a classic album. Like there's a piece about Fleetwood Mac's rumors in here. Um, And I'm just kind of really curious about, like, how do you approach something like that? I mean, everyone in the world has heard rumors if they've been in a mall in the past 40 years. So, like, how do you try to say something new about something that's as ubiquitous and beloved as that?
1: You know, and I never been super interested in saying something new per se. Mm. You know, by virtue of the fact that I'm a feminist critic and I I approach work with a uh, feminist uh, sense of interrogation um, that lots of times I think that is, um, well maybe not new, um, unusual, particularly Mm. when we when when I come to a piece that is retrospective, whether it's, you know, this Joni box set or this this rumors box set or you know, Sonic Youth or Dinosaur Jr or whatever you know, that I, I review in the book, that, you know, for me, I went back to early contemporary to, you know, rumors music journalism because, you know, for me, what was what I was trying to find out was, is there something here more than the story that we've been told and handed down about this record? And that piece in particular, you know, um, uh, a writer from Crawdaddy, which was like an early, um, sort of contemporary, uh, of, of Rolling Stone and really an early pioneering publication for music journalism in the U S that, um, the writer just like shows up, I think, to the rumor session or knows Stevie and then spends several days with her basically nonstop. I mean, who knows how drug fueled it's very 70s to do that. But, um, and, and and it is really fly on the wall, you know, I was riding in the limo with her to and from the studio, I was with her at her house in between the sessions, is at these sessions and the kind of access that you would never is, is inconceivable these days. Um, and, and, and some of those things were really revelatory in these early pieces about, you know, just how collaborative it was, just how, um, you, you know, at that moment, maybe they didn't really know what they had with rumors and, and how the success of uh, their self-titled record um, came right in the middle of rumors. And so they kind of got to, to step on the gas um, and, and it kind of maybe fueled the, the excess and also the, the drive towards making a record that was, you know, going to be just such a pop landmark and so there's, there's, um, you know, depending on on the pieces, but I, I really try to go back and go, you know, what can I, what can I discern from whatever archival material there is around this? What can we glean? And and I really like doing historic pieces for that that reason. There's a little bit of detective work to it.
2: Do you like doing historic pieces more than doing pieces that are about somebody that people haven't heard of and you're sort of shining a light on them and maybe introducing people to their work?
1: No, not per se. You know, I mean, one of the things that, that grew particularly exhausting in the last, you know, decade, half decade of music criticism is, you know, when you're expected to, say, cover Taylor Swift and you think about all the different sort of iterations that her career has gone through and that, you know, things that she did where she got, you know, assailed by, you know, her fans or assailed by, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. broadly music culture or where she was reviled or where she was. And, and, and how quickly mm-hmm. the internet and the access that social media gives us into an artist's life. Or, or doesn't, you know, illuminate their motivations for something, um, just gives us the surfaces, how quickly that makes the ground beneath them shift. So, you know, at, at one point I was approached by an editor to do a book that would, you know, pertain to Taylor Swift. And I thought, you know, by the time I even get to the proposal, you know, Public Tide had changed on her, you know, back and forth multiple times. And there was just so much, um, you know, there's, to me, one of the interesting things about, you know, writing pieces that are, you know, uh, historically facing is that, you know, the ground, the ground's a little bit more steady. It's settled in some ways, even if the artist is still making uh, music that you, that, that, you know, if I'm talking about something from the 80s, you know, that that that's sort of fixed in place, uh, you know, regardless of what I what I write about or, or find out about a, an artist um, that it's just a little bit more settled territory.
2: Mm hmm. Um, you wrote a really great piece on emo music in, I think, in, in 2003, kind of at peak emo, um, looking at the pretty rampant misogyny in that music. And you you tell a great anecdote of some uh, male acquaintance of yours basically kind of accosting you and saying, if you have a problem with emo, you have a problem with all of rock music history. And you basically answer, yes, I have a problem with all of rock music history. Um, do you feel like that history looks different now? I mean, I'm thinking about just how many, uh, how many of the most exciting artists in indie rock music now are women. I mean, I, I have a friend who does a summer mixtape and always has trouble finding good songs by men to include. Um, <laughs> do you feel like it would be like harder to write a sentence like men writing songs about women is practically the definition of rock and roll itself now in 2021?
1: I think definitely less so. I think that is less true over time. Um, But then again, you know, you look at, at, um, what's been happening in country music and at country radio for the last 20 years where it is the very purposeful sort of muting and erasure of women's work. And that even though um, fans find and truly celebrate the women in the genre, You know, all of the attention, budget, airtime still goes to men. So I think it depends on where you're talking about, um, who gets to define what. You know, uh, I think things have changed a lot in the last decade in terms of, you know, um, how many women, particularly as solo artists, and how many queer and non-binary and trans artists are being given the opportunity to uh, make records uh, and and really decide what their own image and marketing and you know ideas are that we're getting people in a in a less sort of filtered and distilled form um, and I think by virtue of that yes that does that does change. Um, the immediate history, but still so much of that um, faces these sort of institutional and, you know, canonical ideals of the music industry, the streaming industry, um, and music media writ large.
2: I was really shocked by the piece on country music. I mean, they even have like a specific percentage that they think uh, country music fans will, will listen to women, which is like 13% of songs can be by women, which is just extraordinarily low, especially considering, like, I, I can name many, I mean, I'm not a huge country fan, but I can name many more women country artists that are making music today than, than men country artists. Um, were, were you surprised when you started looking at that scene more closely? No. Great.
1: Great <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I, I knew that there was like a, I mean, just because if, if you look at what had been happening in country since the 90s, think about who dominated country music in the 90s you know, it was Shania Twain and, 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 you know, people who are huge and, um, Dixie Chicks now, The Chicks, you know, it's a lot of different, um, artists who really brought a new listenership into country. And, um, so what happens when that happens is that, um, you know, typically women are shut out and that's just historically what, what happens, regardless of genre, is that particularly once um, once women make something uh, essentially big business, it gets uh, sort of colonized by m- men and male artists who then um, really dominate and and shut out women in in that realm. I mean, that's that's alternative rock in the uh, late nineties, early aughts, that's, um, R and B around the same time, you know, there's, there's a lot of different spaces beyond country where that, that's just the story
2: of the market. Is that part of, is that partially the Joni Mitchell story for you? Do you think?
1: No, I mean, Joni's Joni's her own Joni's her own thing. You know, she's, she's obviously, you know, iconoclastic in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think her story, her story fits an easy narrative because she made such incredible choices as an artist. Um, And as she said herself, that because she was a, a, you know, young woman with long hair and a guitar in her hands, that people always just assumed she was a folky. And she was trying to be, you know, Miles Davis. Right. So, you know, she, she really saw herself first and foremost as a composer. And, and I think, um, you know, her first, I'm going to say six to seven albums, you know, she was really pushing against this reductive idea of who and what she could be, you know, um, and, and, and a gendered expectation of who she mm-hmm. could be. And because she was so pioneering in that way, and she had a freedom that, I mean, it, it, it's very few artists have had, let alone women. That it's hard to it's hard to to sort of uh, generalize and apply. Uh, Joni, Joni sort of. Uh, story elsewhere as some right as like a a a teachable tale yeah yeah an archetype
2: I do think there's like a, a degree to which I mean I'm not a professional music critic but it seems like it seems like she kind of opened the door to a much more kind of introspective and personal style of songwriting that was dismissed when she did it as you know she's just talking about herself now she's not Using symbolism, so it's not good anymore. But then, you know, Bob Dylan comes out with "Blood on the Tracks" three or four years later, and the reception's much different.
1: Yeah, and and you can even see that uh, to a different degree as and as she has rightly, you know, been very critical of this. Is you know she made these records that were pop, but and pop rock, but heading towards jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were sort of uh, you know early early fusion in a way, right? And playing with all these same folks that would play on Steely Dan records three, four years later. And, you know, people at the time called her a dilettante and they claimed that it was, you know, they laid the successes of those records, including Court and Spark, at the feet of her band leader at the time. um, And said, you know, that this was sort of, uh, Joni experimenting and just uh, like her success had gone to her head and she thought she could do anything you know that's what they said uh, Hissing of Summer Lawns you know mm-hmm. mistakenly um, th- that that critically that's how it was received and then all those same guys I mean literally the exact same band <laughs> right. is then backing up Steely Dan and, and their their said to be masters, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so, and, and she was like, you know, I mean, pretty, pretty F you about all of it, rightly so. Yeah. And, 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 but also very much the the same thing is that, you know, Dylan, I think is, is, you know, rightly afforded a lot of uh, credit for changing what songwriting could be, but he wasn't a composer. He wasn't a, gifted producer like joni he was not the vocalist like joni Mm -hmm. he wasn't you know like you listen to the end of um, hissing of summer lawns you know sweet bird there's like 300 tracks of joni's voice where she spent six weeks figuring out these incredible harmonies and then you know creating this wall of her voice and like, would you ever want to hear
2: <laughs> a wall of Bob Dylan?
1: <laughs> a wall of Bob Dylan trying to harmonize with himself—you yeah, just yeah. wouldn't. And and so, in some ways, I think, um, you know, the reception of, of or the perception of Joni as as a sort of master of you know folk or the the female Dylan. I mean, she's really fundamentally a different artist, and as you're saying, very much endowed people to get personal in their lyrics. And at Mm -hmm. the time, you know, people were crediting that to um, James Taylor because she had been dating James Taylor around blue and then later Jackson Brown, you know, and it's like, it's, it's a real, like, wait a minute, you know, and then, and you hear these, you know, read these interviews with all of these people who were essentially her peers and, and just saying, you know, none of us could keep up with Joni, you know, even, even, um, you know, the famed, uh, the famed beginnings of uh, CSNY uh, Crosby still Nash, and young is, you know, she was living with uh, Nash and Crosby was around all the time. And then Steven still said, you know, there's a rumor we started at Joni's house. He said, but I would never sing in front of Joni. I would be embarrassed because wow. she was so good. And so he says. So, so I think we started at Mama Cass's house. So you know, um, but that, but that,
2: yeah,
1: you know, her peers just talk about how she's untouchable. Yeah, you know, and I think she really, I think she really is. And you know, um, I, really, uh, I really, I really, I um, really think there's nobody like her. Yeah, there's nobody like her.
2: In the um the newest of many Bob Dylan documentaries, or maybe it's not even the newest anymore, the one about the Rolling Thunder review. Mm-hmm. I think the moment where she appears like halfway through and plays an early version of Coyote is just like the most incredible part of that whole movie. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just her and a guitar in like some hotel room and just you're like, oh, right, this is the best song that we've heard in the past two hours.
1: hmm y- You know, the the um, the Sam Shepard book um, that's sort of his reportorial diary about that you know he doesn't he doesn't include his affair with Joni on that tour um yeah. and you know coyote famously about him um and and Joni Joni joined that tour willingly even though at the time she was the ostensibly the biggest star Dylan hadn't toured in years they're playing mm-hmm. like gymnasiums and she had at that point you know a top 10 hit um she insisted on opening Um, or so she says, you know, there's a lot of confusion about, I think there was a lot of drugs on that tour. Mm -hmm. And then, then there were also things that she talks about later doing very purposely to flummox and frustrate Joan Baez, who I think by that point she hated. And so she was being like kind of rough and contrarian and trying to offend her all the time, um, and being sort of not very cooperative, But that she does talk about having to be on that tour was like a constant challenge to subvert herself around all of these men, Mm -hmm. you know. But then when you hear that music, when you hear the songs and the way she was writing and composing at that time, I mean, she's just you can't you can't. You can't subvert how great she is. And that's, you know, that's no shade to Rolling Thunder. Rolling Thunder is actually my favorite, um, you know, the, 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 the live bootleg series from that yeah. tour is like my favorite. That's my favorite Dylan. That's my yeah. favorite Dylan, yeah. really. Um, but it's really saying something. It's really saying something, you know, that you can watch that footage. And her just doing Coyote, which she had probably written just a few days earlier, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like... Oh, it's like it's like you know the day after Woodstock when she's on to Cavett. She didn't go to Woodstock, and in the whatever twelve hours since it wrapped, all of a sudden she has this song that's a anthem of a generation.
2: I mean, <laughs> yeah. which is not even she's not messing first,
1: around. Not she's even not even the messing first around.
2: First time that she wrote the anthem of a no, generation. No, no, <laughs> nor would it be the last. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yes. Well, I could I could talk about how great Joni Mitchell is all day, but I, I recognize that you have uh, you know other things in your life, so I should let you go. But thanks so much for uh, being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful collection. I, I so enjoyed reading it.
1: Thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciate all your insightful questions and uh, having me on today.
0: Plus.